In this series, we're exploring the topic of zeal and we're looking at the role of zeal in faith. And it's a bit of a personal sermon series for me because I've been processing a season in which I lost zeal and reflecting on how I found it again, what I had to do to cultivate zeal in my faith again. And to make sure we're on the same page, let's define zeal once again. Zeal is great energy or enthusiasm connected with something you feel strongly about. Uh, When it comes to faith in Jesus, uh, J.C. Ryle put it like this, zeal in Christianity is a burning desire to please God, to do his will, and to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. And no one exemplified this more than Jesus. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would wrap himself in zeal as a cloak. And in our passage today, we see just how deeply zeal burned in Christ's heart. And yet in this series, I also want to examine some of the culprits of zeal, some of the things that rob us of zeal or throw water on the burning fire of faith. And in our passage today, Jesus exposes spiritual consumerism as a threat to healthy zeal. Because in every way, spiritual consumerism, as we come to understand it, stands in contradiction to the way of the cross. And so there's just three things I want to explore this morning. The the zeal of Jesus, spiritual consumerism, and the way of the cross. So if you have a Bible, open it up to the Gospel of John. If you don't have one of the St. Peter's Bibles, uh, take it home with you. And everything's also going to be on the screen behind me. John chapter 2. We read this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So let's begin with our first point, the zeal of Jesus. The temple was the beating heart of Jerusalem. Uh, We can't think of the temple like we might think of a synagogue or a church building found in most neighborhoods throughout our city. The temple was one of a kind. There was nothing else like it. It was the center of Israel's national identity. And Jesus essentially shuts it down. And not just on any day, but on the greatest festival of their year, on the Passover. But this scene... It feels a little uncharacteristic for Jesus, doesn't it? We might expect this from Indiana Jones or Zorro or some other whip-savvy action hero, but not from Jesus. You know, it disrupts this tranquil, peaceful, friendly version of Jesus that we're often presented. This is not the Jesus of the portraits we see in many paintings. But Jesus always defies a simple portrait because he is none other than God himself living and breathing in the flesh. And so your vision of Jesus, no matter how well you know him, is always too small and can always grow. And we need to come to the Gospels time and time again to be disrupted by the vision they present so that our knowledge of the Lord can continue to grow. And Jesus here, he creates a whip. And then he drives out all the vendors and all the animals And I think it's important to note that none of the Gospels uh, say that he hurt anyone directly. 
Yes, he's being aggressive, but this is a prophetic action. It's a prophetic moment, but it is unsettling. You know, how could Jesus behave like this? What is going on? But to answer that, I actually think we need to ask a different question. And the question is, why is Jesus behaving like this? And fortunately, Jesus tells us why. Look at verse 16. Jesus told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So we get two reasons from Jesus. And the first is this. Jesus has taken personal offense. He calls the temple my father's house. And this is a big deal in ancient Judaism. To call yourself the son of God is to claim that you are divine. And Jesus has just expressed personal ownership over God's temple. It's a shocking claim. But you you see, Jesus isn't upset because his religious sensibilities were offended. That's not why he's upset. He's upset because his sense of ownership over the temple has been violated as God's son. He can determine what is and isn't appropriate in that house. And he says everything that is happening here is utterly inappropriate. He's taken offense. And as John remembers this, He adds in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, when Jesus says my father's house, he doesn't mean the physical temple. He doesn't mean the bricks and the mortar. He's talking about the original intent of its construction. The temple was meant to be God's house, the dwelling place of God, where heaven intersected with earth, where you could encounter the very presence of God. Jesus is full of zeal, but he's not zealous for the physical house. He's not even zealous for the religious institutions and customs. Jesus is zealous for his father's house. In other words, Jesus is zealous for the presence of God. God, and he is zealous for it, and he wants nothing to stand in the way of worshipers entering into that very presence. But the second reason Jesus acts this way is because he can't stand what they've done with the place. Uh, One of my hobbies is keeping up with new architecture in Vancouver. I love it. And I love some of the new creative projects going up in the city. And the Charleston in Yale Town was finished last year, and it is not Uh, one of the projects I'm excited about. In fact, I would suggest that Charleston should issue a public apology to the entire city because they have ruined part of the downtown skyline with this 40-story Miami Vice-themed art. It's an abomination, and you can see it over the Granville Bridge. Will someone start a change.org petition for me? This thing needs to come down. You know, I feel this sense of indignation I can't stand what they've done with the place. This is my city. How could this happen? Jesus has taken personal offense that a marketplace could be set up in God's dwelling. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. See, his father's house has been tarnished and it's almost as bad as the Charleston. Okay, it's worse. (laughs) Jesus can't stand what they've done with the place. You see, the real issue is that the purpose of God's house has been missed. It's become a house of trade. You see, Jesus is showing us that the marketplace and all of its vendors do not belong in the temple, period. 
even if they're providing a religious service, even if they're a pragmatic solution to a need, they don't belong within the temple courts. It's like Paul McCartney collaborating with Kanye and Rihanna, or Sting collaborating with Shaggy, or a combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. They just don't belong together. <laughs> and it's the same with the temple and the marketplace. But what's wrong with the marketplace? What's so bad about the marketplace? Now, the other Gospels highlight how corrupt these different vendors and money changers were. You know, they extorted worshipers who had traveled from far away and needed sacrifices, and they especially took advantage of the poor. But John's gospel just makes one point. The marketplace with its vendors has no place in the temple whatsoever. Even if you took away the corruption, they still don't belong. Because there is no common ground between the house of God and the market of man. The two don't belong together. And it's because there's a deeper problem still. The way you purchase and get things in your everyday life can shape the way you interact with God. You see, the truth is the marketplace has the power to shape people into spiritual consumers, even outside the temple walls. But when the marketplace is present inside the house of God, it's a sign that the people of God have become spiritual consumers, and we're just as prone to this danger today. So let's consider our second point, spiritual consumerism. Now, the marketplace was always a place you have to go. Uh, you might go to Choices or Nestor's or the Pacific Center or Metro Town or if you're crazy, Granville Island on a Saturday. And up until about 25 years ago, the marketplace was always out there. It was always a place you had to put some energy into and get up and go. But that's changed. Just as the marketplace was brought into the temple, so now the marketplace is brought into our homes. Netflix and iTunes and Amazon are in the luxury of our homes and in the devices we carry wherever we go. You don't have to go anywhere to the market now. It is always with you a click away. But we forget, everything we do shapes who we are. Everything we do shapes who we are. Say that with me. Everything we do shapes who we are. Even our patterns of buying and browsing and consuming, day after day, shape how we see the world, shape how we see relationships, shape how we see ourselves, and even shape how we interact with God. But what happens when our patterns of consumerism change the way we think about God, change the way we experience God, change the way we relate to God? What happens when the marketplace creates spiritual consumers? I want to consider just three things. First, spiritual consumerism reduces God from a deity to a commodity. In consumerism, you know, fulfilling our personal desires, that's paramount. That's the goal. So every product, everything exists to satisfy our cravings and our demands. And something is only deemed valuable depend on its lasting usefulness to us. But it's the same with spiritual consumerism. God's value and worth is determined by his usefulness to us. You see, as a spiritual consumer, the importance of God in your life will depend on your evaluation of God's 
performance and how useful he's been to you as of late. And if God doesn't deliver in the way you wanted or on the timeline you expected, rather than wrestle with God like the psalmists, the spiritual consumer will conclude that God has no value and will put him aside like any other product or thing. Second, spiritual consumerism reduces Jesus Christ from Lord to label. Spiritual consumers see Jesus as a label and in addition to their own personal brand. You see, Jesus is a way you can accentuate the spiritual consumer's image. The ways of Jesus, at least the popularly accepted ones like compassion and forgiveness and justice, become a kind of virtue signaling to the wider culture around us. It's a way that we can demonstrate that we're acceptable. You see, the spiritual consumer says, I'm good, I'm kind, I care about what you care about. I don't disrupt the status quo. But it's only possible to wear Jesus as a label if you tame him down and put him on mute. He's a label for the spiritual consumer's image, but he is no longer Lord He's glossed over. He's simplified. He's reduced down to something you can manage and something that can be worn. And so the spiritual consumer wears him but never submits to him. Speaks about him, highlights him, is excited about him, but does not submit to him. Third, spiritual consumerism reduces worship to pleasure. And this is most evident in the way that someone interacts with a Sunday service. It's easy to make Sunday worship about our preferences and to assess a service based on how we felt throughout it. And since churches have now positioned themselves within the marketplace mentality, we can pick and choose a church based off of our own personal preferences. Loud or quiet music, liturgy or no liturgy, expository or topical preaching, 30 or so minutes or 12 minutes, whatever you want. We want a service that feels pleasurable to us and meets enough of our personal demands. And while variety within the church isn't a bad thing, our allegiance to the church should never be based on what we get out of the church. But often it is, and if that's the case, that's spiritual consumerism. We approach church like another product. Does it satisfy? Does it meet my needs? If it gets too demanding, is it worth it? And as long as we find that it's meeting our needs, as long as we still feel satisfied, we'll commit. But should that change, we'll shop around or we'll put it aside altogether. These are just some of the marks of spiritual consumerism. But what we need to ask is what is the result? Because I suspect this is present in all of us in some shape, some form. It's present in me. You see, spiritual consumerism breeds consumer sovereignty. Consumer sovereignty. In the end, the faith of a spiritual consumer revolves around their desires, revolves around their preferences, revolves around their cravings, and so the consumer remains at the center. They remain the center of their lives. You see, the spiritual consumer might have zeal. They might be excited about spiritual things, but their zeal is not for God himself only for what God can do for them. And this kind of zeal will never last. It will never be steady. 
But then what happens if the spiritual consumer becomes unsatisfied with God? Well, William Kavanaugh helpfully puts, puts it like this. Consumerism isn't about having something more, but about having something else. Consumerism isn't about having something more. It's about having something else. You see, present-day consumerism is masterfully designed to psychologically manipulate us. And I know I worked in marketing and advertising. And it's designed to keep you in an endless cycle of satisfaction and dissatisfaction. Think about the last time you upgraded your phone. How good did that feel? How long did the feeling last? And how did you feel when it wore off? Think about the last time binge watching your show all night felt like a good idea. But how long did the feeling last? And how did you feel once it wore off? You see, consumerism builds temporary elation and short-lived satisfaction. But eventually, the elation and the satisfaction lessen, and the dissatisfaction starts to rise back up. And so we look for something more, but we don't actually look for something more, do we? We look for something else. Well, if this isn't working, maybe there is something else I have yet to acquire. Maybe I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And so the modern marketplace depends on this cycle. And consumerism pulls on this deepest hunger of the human soul. We want something. We can feel it. We, we can feel a desire to satisfy a hunger that we can't seem to fulfill. And consumerism is designed to exacerbate that hunger, but it can never deliver. And there's two reasons why it can never satisfy that hunger. The first is easy. The marketplace depends on you remaining hungry. It wants you to keep consuming. And the other reason is this. The marketplace knows deep down it can never deliver. It is simply pulling on a human desire and using it for its own end. But it never intends to satisfy that desire because it knows it can't. And so spiritual consumerism makes the consumer sovereign. But your appetite is actually Lord. You get to make the choices, but you're still serving the demands of your appetite, and you end up living in this perpetual cycle of satisfaction and dissatisfaction over and over again when your appetite is your Lord. And so what happens to God when God doesn't meet the demands of the spiritual consumer? Well, in many cases, it leads to a crisis of faith, right? And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that crisis of faith leads to repentance, leads to an honest self-examination of how you've misconstrued God and, and leads to a growing vision of who God is. And sometimes that's a good thing. But sometimes when God doesn't deliver to the spiritual consumer's man, demands, they just put God aside for something else. You turn away from Jesus and turn towards secular humanism with a few hints of Christianity. Or you turn away from Jesus and you turn toward a quasi-spirituality that's made up of a variety of thoughts that you like, but you're still in control. And you can still determine if it meets your demands. And so you see, even if you put God aside for something else, you haven't actually changed. You've just decided you want a different thing. But you're still given over to consumer sovereignty. 
You're still serving your appetite as Lord, and you're still stuck in this perpetual cycle of satisfaction and dissatisfaction. So returning to our passage, zeal for God's house consumed Jesus. He couldn't stand to see the marketplace shaping the spirituality of ancient Judaism. Bring your money in. Buy your sacrifice. Make your offering. Appease God. Go on with life, expecting that God now will meet your demands. Jesus could not stand seeing convenience in the place of faithfulness. He couldn't stand seeing um, corruption in the place of holiness. And when the dust settled, when the whip was put down, look at how people respond to Jesus in verses 18 through 21. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Zeal for God's house consumed Jesus. That's the point of this passage. But consume can also mean devour and even destroy. And many scholars argue that there's a double meaning going on here. Zeal for your house consumes me. Yes, Jesus felt zeal. He had great burning passion for the presence of God. But that also led to him being destroyed for the sake of God. You see, zeal led to the cross, where Christ's body was torn down and consumed for the sins of the world. And so when we look closely at the zeal of Jesus, we see that healthy zeal leads to the way of the cross. And so that's our last point, the way of the cross. The way of the cross is a counterculture to spiritual consumerism. If you want to recover a healthy zeal, it's found on the way of the cross. It's the way of losing ourselves to find ourselves, to find life, denying ourselves and picking up the cross and following Jesus. And so I want to consider three marks of the way of the cross. First, we see the temple for the house. In ancient Judaism, the temple was meant to be for the house. The sacrifices offered there were only there to help maintain a healthy relationship with God so worshipers could remain in his presence. The temple was constructed primarily for the presence of God. The sacrifices served that aim. But it got distorted very quickly. And over and over again, the prophet said, this has always been a temporary structure anyway. The temple is not the end. The house of God is what matters. But when the temple of Christ's body was torn down, when he breathed his last, what did the gospel say? That curtain in the Holy of Holies in the inner courts of the temple was torn in two. And so through his sacrifice, Jesus opened up a new way into the presence of God. And it's no longer through a temple. It's no longer through a physical building. It is through his life offered on the cross. And so if we are going to embrace the way of the cross, we have to accept that we need the temple for the house. We need the sacrifice of Jesus 
to enter into the presence of God. There is no other way. There is no other offering. There is no other sacrifice. There is no other transaction. The temple is for the house. The cross is necessary for us to enter the presence of God because unless our sins are dealt with, unless they are forgiven and atoned for, you will never have access into God's presence. But when we say the temple is for the house, the point is to thank God for the sacrifice because we're focused on the relationship. The sacrifice is never detached from the outcome, that God had this happen so he could be with us in a healthy relationship so we could enjoy his presence. That's the temple or the house. But second, we move from consumption to being consumed. From consumption to being consumed. The way of the cross is an invitation. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. That's what Jesus says. And we can only follow him because he's pioneered this path for us. But this call to follow him is a call to the cross-shaped life. And it requires us being consumed as well. As I mentioned when we first started this series, I went through a a very difficult season in my life and in ministry uh, several years ago. And I, as I started to recover from the grief of losing a friend to suicide, uh, which took a long time, I found that even as I had regained steady ground, that my zeal was still waning. And as I started to evaluate my heart, uh, I found that resentment had actually grown in my spirit. And it wasn't resentment to any particular person or group of people. It was actually resentment toward the cost of ministry. Because I watched how the cost of ministry took a toll on my friend before his life fell apart. And I resented how the cost of ministry was taking a toll on my own life too. And to be more specific, I resented the social impact of ministry on my life. Often I felt like an outsider to our community. One who never gets to enjoy it quite the same way as everyone else. I resented the lack of freedom I felt to be my true, broken, and yet redeemed self around others and constantly felt like I had to filter every thought, everything I say. I resented having to tell yet another new acquaintance that my vocation as a pastor to inevitably be ghosted the next day. And so I felt ministry had created this high social cost where I had to endure being isolated and filtered and excluded, and I had come to resent it. Now to be clear, and I really want to be clear, I'm not saying that my thinking or perception on these matters was accurate. But at that time, that's how I saw things. I now feel less isolated. I feel less filtered and less excluded as I've developed healthier rhythms and practices for engaging in our community as a pastor and just as a human being, which I am, in case you were wondering. But during that season... I resented the cost of ministry. And and this resentment, though, was one of the reasons that my zeal remained low. Because how can you be passionate about a Savior who asks so much of you? Do you feel any resentment toward Jesus? Do you resent the cost of singleness because Jesus asks you to be with a fellow believer and there doesn't seem to be many suitable or available people around? 
Do you resent the cost of generosity, giving your time and finances away in the midst of such a busy lifestyle and costly city? Do you resent the cost of Christ's exclusivity that Jesus unashamedly claims that he is the only path to God? He is the only truth. He's the only way, bar none. Do you resent the cost of having to forgive those who've harmed you? Having to serve those who don't say thank you? Having to follow these countercultural ways of Jesus? Do you resent it over time? Do you resent having to lay down your favorite vices and sins? Because you don't quite understand why they're a problem. Why they actually hurt you because they feel good. And so over time you resent that Jesus would even ask for you to follow him in purity. You see, in these little ways over time, we do resent him a little bit if we're not careful. Because the cost is high. But resentment kills zeal. When I confronted how I was beginning to resent the cost of ministry, at a deeper level, I just had to admit to myself, no, I just resent the cost of discipleship. And when this was diagnosed, it became clear to me, on some level, I was still a spiritual consumer. I wanted convenience rather than cost. I wanted ease rather than challenge. I wanted safety rather than risk. I wanted acceptance rather than peculiarity. We have to acknowledge this. Those are the impulses of spiritual consumerism. Following Jesus is costly because denying ourselves and following him means moving away from consumption, moving away from what we can get out of life, moving away of making the most of our time for our own demands and giving ourselves to Christ, losing our lives so we can find them, denying them so we can follow him. It is a huge cost. And so how do we learn to embrace this cost without any resentment? That's my third point. We move from consumerism to adoration. Jesus tells us to count the cost. He is straight up with us. If you want to follow me, first count the cost. But he does not tell us to get fixated on the cost. And that was the mistake I'd made. I got fixated on what following Jesus was costing me day after day after day. That is not the same as counting the cost. If we're going to get fixated on anything, what we need to do is get fixated on the love of God. Because God's love always offsets any cost of following him. St. Francis de Sell wrote, Zeal is a burning fervor of love. And it leads one to the desire to remove, to distance oneself from, or to steer away from all that is in conflict with the object of one's love. You see, consumerism wants the next thing, but adoration wants the one thing. Consumerism can toss things aside and keep searching for something else, but adoration remains with the one thing because there's none better. You see, the way of the cross is not about self-denial for the sake of self-denial. The way of the cross is not about self-denial for the sake of self-denial. It's about removing all of the things that stand as barriers between us and God's love. And so if we find that our zeal for God is flickering, it's often because our sense of God's love for us is too small. 
or it's because some form of resentment has risen up in our hearts. But in those times especially, we're invited to consider how Jesus showed his, his burning fervor of love that removed everything that was in conflict with the object of his love. And that's what Jesus did as his temple was born down, torn down. That's what he did as he was consumed for our sins. This is not just God acting justly. This is God acting lovingly out of his desire to be with the object of his love because God loved the world before sending his son into the world and the son came into the world because God loves the world and he was sacrificed because he loves you and not so that he can love you. And being clear on that is very important. Jesus didn't have to die so you could be lovable. God loves you, and so Jesus died to forgive you, to be welcomed into his presence with open arms, to be adopted into his family free of charge, not using any sort of transaction of consumerism, but opening your hands, acknowledging the hunger that you have that is insatiable, and receiving the gift of his life. Friends, if your zeal is wavering, the practice I want to advocate for you this morning is meditating upon the cross. Because as we meditate on the cross, that will kindle the fire of your zeal. When we see that Christ's sacrifice alone ushers us into the presence of God, zeal follows suit. Because how can you not be passionate about a Savior who loves you so much? A Savior who has removed every single barrier between you and God that simply invites you to come to him with faith. Yes, Jesus invites us to renounce spiritual consumerism and to embrace this way of the cross. Yes, it is costly, but his love always offsets the cost. 